All right, I'm John Yates, and I chair the technology practice at Morris Manny and Martin, and I am here today with a dear friend, Ricky Steele. And if anybody's on social media or anybody's been in the technology community here for any period of time, you have gotten to know Ricky Steele and his leadership role and his key role in networking in this community. And one of the things we're going to talk about also is Ricky's, what is it, fourth edition now? Third, third edition. Third edition of The Heart of Networking. And if you haven't read this book, you need to because Ricky is one of the most phenomenal networkers on the planet and has some incredible photos in here. Um, you know, he is more impressive than Forrest Gump when it comes to meet with important <laughs> people. So, Ricky, thank you for joining me today. That's an honor, John. I think that I'm, as people tell me from time to time, I'm the most networked person in Atlanta, Georgia. And I quickly say, you obviously have not met John Yates <laughs> because I'm second fiddle. But uh, nonetheless, we have certainly had a lot of fun together over the last 25, 30 years of, of friendship that developed in a deep friendship. And uh, I'm honored to know you and, and thrilled to be on the show with you today. Well, thank you, Rick. I'm going to start out by, by asking a little bit about your background, how you ended up coming to Atlanta, and then let's explore from there about how you got involved in the technology community. So what brought you to town? Well, I was born in Atlanta. I was born in Crawford Long in 1952. I'm 70, almost 71 now. And uh, my dad played football at the University of Georgia. And shortly after he got out of playing ball at Georgia, he was in ROTC as well. So he had to go to Columbus, Georgia, right outside of Columbus, Fort Benning, to do his OCS. While he was there, he re-injured his knee that he had operated on twice as a dog and um, uh, ended up getting a medical discharge. So I was born in Atlanta. My mom and I were living with her mom and dad. And shortly thereafter, when dad was let out of the service, uh, he liked Columbus, Georgia and stayed there the rest of his life. So I moved to Columbus, Georgia in 1953 and grew up there. Columbus is a great city to raise a family. There's a lot of great things from Aflac to W.C. Bradley to Synovus to Tesis and the list goes on and on. But in 1979, I had started a limousine service in Columbus. I've always loved the hospitality business. My dad had a couple of hotels, and so I've it'd been in and around hospitality a lot. Uh, so in 1979, I started a limousine service in Columbus, Georgia. And I don't know how detailed you know about Columbus, but it will not be the next great limousine capital of the world. <laughs> I had two cars, which were four times more than I needed. So I moved to Atlanta in 1980 with my little two-car limousine service to try to find a partner to try to sustain it, because I did have a relationship and a contract at Callaway Gardens. One thing led to another, and because I'm a big believer in customer service, the customer's always right, doing to others, golden rule living, that sort of thing. We end up growing the largest company in the Southeast. Wow. And uh, we went from those two little cars to at one point, we had about 110 vehicles. We had the contract. We paid the city of Atlanta $184,000 a year for the contract at the Atlanta airport. And we hustled everybody back and forth to the hotels, the limousines from Sinatra to Prince to uh, you name the person that was in the back of one of our limousines. If it happened in Atlanta, uh, we drove them. And, uh, and so it was a lot, a lot of fun, but um you know, everything in life changes. And uh, in about, uh, I don't know, I started three or four businesses and somewhere in the middle of those, uh, my younger brother called me and uh, he had started a software company called Quad Bay Software in Columbus. And I had just sold a business to Cox Broadcasting. So I was taking a little time off. I had a little bit of cash in my pocket and he decided to take all of it. And, uh, <laughs> and my indentured uh, service to him and, and to our company for a couple of years. And that's how I really got into technology and first met you and 
and Sig and Paparelli and all the people that have had such an impact on my life. So let me ask you this, Rick. You, you are a great networker. Um, did it come naturally to you? Were your parents networkers? Did you wake up one day and say, I'm going to be a people person and get to know folks? Or was it a, was it a skill that you had to learn? Uh, my dad graduated from the University of Georgia in basket weaving. Um, <laughs> he played football and he had somebody that did his homework. Uh, he got out of the of service and started selling insurance door to door for $150 a month. But he loved people. He shook the hands of the guy that, that pumped your own pumped your gas for you at the gasoline station or the mayor if he saw him in the restaurant. He was the networker before anyone ever used networking. So I inherited what little skills I, I may have. I watched him and and I really wanted to be him. He was he started 15, 20 different businesses. Uh, he built hotels, condos. And this is all from a guy that really didn't have a big education, but just had a passion. He was smart, street smart. And uh, and so he built some great businesses and, 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 and did very, very well financially in his life. And I've just tried to follow him and in the networking aspect of it, probably primarily. So I look at your book and it is, it's a heart of networking and a phenomenal set of stories. You've got photos in here with some incredibly impressive people. Um, how in the world do you have a situation where you can get in front of people like Ted Turner, in front of President Carter, in front of, you know, people like uh, Mark Cuban, I mean, it, the list just goes on and on and on. I mean, do you make a list of these people? And, you know, John Lewis, I mean, how do you how do you get in front of these people? How did you get networked to such an impressive group of folks? God looks after those who are too dumb to look after themselves. <laughs> I'm his best boy. Uh, I, I'm out there in the streets, John. I go anywhere that I can possibly serve or to meet people. To me, the greatest joy in the world is meeting other people, people who need people are the luckiest people in the world, Barbara Streisand sang many, many years ago. And I'm lucky to want to have relationships. So attending events, I think I met Ludacris at a fundraiser for the food bank. I met President Carter when he came to speak to my church group at St. Paul United Methodist in Columbus, Georgia, when I was 17 years old. And I fell in love with the man. He so impressed me. And uh, I have been fortunate to be on the board of ambassadors at the Carter Center for the last 12 or 13 years. And of course you remember as well, uh, I've just been blessed to spend time with some really extraordinary people. Uh, and so it just, you know, when you're there and you bump into them, they're pretty kind folks and they're there for the same reason. So you say, you know, you mind having a picture or somebody grabs you and says, you know, how about joining us in this photo? And, and so all of a sudden you have one, but I, I've been blessed to meet some incredible folks. Now, one of the things you mentioned, and it's in your book and, and you, you're a master of it is it's not just meeting people <clears throat> as much as it is meeting people and serving people providing value to people. How should people go about thinking of using that particular equation when they're meeting somebody? The most important person I'm ever going to meet is the next person. The most important person I'm going to be with today is the one I'm staring in the eyes with right at this moment. And an hour from that, maybe somebody completely different. You got to get out of the me mentality. My success has no bearing on my conversations is how can I do something that could possibly help someone else? Because there's no greater joy in this world than to help someone else achieve their goals. All right. So say. let me ask you this question. Sorry for interrupting, but here's one of the things that I find, and it's created an environment where with, with our phones and with our laptops, and let me tell you, I'm guilty of this, but a lot of other people are too. The distractions, you mentioned the importance of focusing on the person you're with, and you've got a talent for that. 
but help the people that are listening here, who I'm pretty sure don't have that same talent, help them understand the importance of that kind of sitting down, really listening, as opposed to fiddling around with their phone or fiddling around with something else or making notes. And again, I'm guilty of it. How do we break ourselves of that habit? Focus on the eyes. You know, the eyes are the kind of the, the, the window to the soul. And by looking someone in the eyes intently uh, and asking provocative questions that will get a response will teach you a lot. And learning is a very good thing. The more we learn, the more successful we might become. So we have two ears, one mouth. We should use them proportionately. <laughs> and so it's my goal to, when someone gives me an answer to a question, that's not generally the end of the question. It's generally, that's fascinating. Tell me a little bit more about that and not jotting notes or, or playing with my phone or whatever the case might be. Am I guilty of it? Heck yeah. Call my wife. She'll tell you by the times I've embarrassed her when I pulled out my phone at the wrong time or whatever the case might be. But it, but it's, it's, it's the heartfelt desire. This, there's a story in my book of something that happened to me when I was 14 years old, a bus trip from Columbus to Atlanta. And I knew at the end of that trip that God had called me to be a servant. He didn't care what business card I happened to be carrying or whether I owned a company or whether I was unemployed, but I was called to serve others. And that's been my motivating factor for the rest of my life. And I'm 70 years old today. Well, you've done a fabulous job of it. And you're, the book is just filled with sort of this service component, you know, sort of what they call it, servant, le servant leadership or service leadership. Uh, you've also been very kind to mention me a few places in here. And you give me way too much credit, but tell a little bit about that story about how we got to know one another and how I might have helped you unknowingly in some instances without the kind of same kind of focus that you've talked about. Well, as you came here in the early 80s uh, with your law practice, you began doing the same thing, not looking out how for John to build the biz biggest law practice in the city, but how to make things happen. You were involved in women in technology. You were involved in Southeastern Software. You were involved in Beta Business Executive Technology Alliance. You were everywhere, so you couldn't go to an event without seeing John Yates on the stage as the board member, as the speaker, or I saw you host a bunch of panels for the United Way, and I was always blown away at your charismatic personality as you would lead three big, big, big-name CIOs through a 30-minute Q&A. So needless to say, I wanted to grow up and be a, a mini John Yates. And then over the years, as our friendship developed, I'm, let me back up. So I'm going to put the rewind button because you don't give yourself enough credit here, Ricky. Who was the one? Tell the story about how you got me involved in the United Way, because it's, it's a fascinating story, but it's a great example of how you connect people and then pull away. You let that relationship build. Um, I, you know, stories that bring me any credit are a little uncomfortable to tell because, you know, I get way more than I deserve as well. But you'd already been involved in the United Way. You'd already been involved with the technology initiative. But I did a lot of back work. And I did. I had more time on my hands than you did. So I did a lot of volunteering at the United Way. And one year they came to me and asked me if I would chair the technology initiative. And I thought, wow, that is pretty impressive. I mean, to be on the council at United Way, be on the board of the local United Way, I thought that would really put a notch in my career I would be in the Business Chronicle. I would have the pictures and, and with really big name folks and yada, yada, yada. And as I was contemplating giving the person an answer who had asked me to do this, I thought about it. Well, you selfish jackrabbit. <laughs> that would be good for you. But you know, you are a vendor. You sell products and services. So 
you don't have the network of people that you're spending money with that you can go and raise money with or ask for favors or to be involved or this, that, and the other. Who does? One name came to mind, and it's John Yates, of course. And it's a kind of a convoluted story, but I had to do a little bit of uh, thinking through the process. But I knew that, you know, you, with where you are, meeting other big name people is always good. So at that point, Oz Nelson was chairman of the board of UPS. And I asked the person that I was dealing with at uh, United Way, do you think you could get Mr. Nelson to call John and ask him personally? And he says, I think so. And so he calls me back a little while later and arranges it. And I call you and, and say, John, I, I had this opportunity at United Way, this, that, and the other. Would you be willing to take a call from Oz Nelson, the chairman of UPS? I don't remember how fast you said yes, but it was not a minute or two later. And uh, you had the call, you took it up, and you not only raised the most money in the United Way history from the technology community, but they created the John Yates Award. And uh, and it was given for many, many years in that process. So again, when you look, when you when you look for opportunities to, to serve, you've got to not have your ego in the middle of it, but how can I best serve? And sometimes you can best serve by not being the center of the attention but pushing to someone who has the ability to do what you cannot do personally. Well, you've done that. That is, I think, one of the keys. And the heart of networking is the fact you've got a big heart to help other people. Um, and been so instrumental to me and so many other folks making those connections and then letting the dynamic of those relationships work out. Now, Ricky, I also remember another story. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I remember this, and this is where I was very so been so impressed with you, Ricky, and and how you get to know people and really study them, so that you can when you're asking questions, you're you're asking real questions and you really listen to them. But I remember a story, and maybe you can share with with us when you went and picked up, I think it was a prospective customer some day, one day, and you picked them up in your car, and you turned your radio on. You had some music that we were playing there. And tell us a little bit more about that story and how it reflected the fact of how you prepare for a meeting. Well, in life, if you're not willing to do the prayer, it's net working. It's not net sleeping. It's not <laughs> net laying around. It's not net hoping and wishing that something good would happen. It's net working. I know a lot of people that say they're not afraid of hard work. Those people I realize have never done any because if you're not willing to work hard, you're not going to be a great networker. I spend at least an hour preparing for every meeting I go into. If it's going to be a five minute meeting or just a walkthrough, I had a meeting with a gentleman. I'm not going to say which company because I don't want to, you know, endanger, endanger relationships, but he was with a major corporation in town. And I, this was, this was a night, uh, this was 2005 or six Facebook, really, Facebook really wasn't a thing, but LinkedIn was gaining traction. So I looked on LinkedIn. He's nowhere to be found. I then pick up the phone and call three or four people at his company that I know that I already knew and said, tell me a little bit about this fellow. Oh, my gosh, you're going to like him. He's a great guy. He's a great contributor. Y'all going to have a great time together. I said, oh, that's pretty good. Is he married? Does he have any children? Where did he go to college? I don't know, but he's a great guy. I thought, how can you know a guy that works at your company and you know nothing about them? So I went on and on and did whatever else I could do. And the night before, I thought, what the heck? He's a big guy, mid to high level position at a big company. He's not on Facebook, but I was out of options. So I looked on Facebook. Not only is he there, but his picture of his daughter playing in the snow the first time, his wife, and he even listed his top 10 favorite songs of all times, <laughs> which I downloaded <laughs> back when you could download songs. 
uh, easily. And uh, I created a, I burned a CD. <laughs> so rather than turning on the radio, when he got in my car uh, that morning, when I picked him up for lunch, I slipped in my brand new CD. <laughs> His ears stood up. <laughs> he said, you listen to great music. I said, you like that? <laughs> Being a little bit dishonest, but uh, but anyway, what kind of lunch do you think we had? It was old home week. We were talking about family, uh, relationships. We just had a great time. When we got back over to his office, I flipped out the CD and said, listen, you know, I, I need to be straight with you. This is, this is your favorite 10 songs off of your Facebook post. I downloaded them. You'll enjoy this CD. I was not a big fan of the Beastie Boys. I did not know Bo Bones Thug and Harmony or Violent Femmes. I'm more I'm more country and uh, and hard rock. But uh, anyway, you take this. He looked at me, shook his head a few times, said, "You were good. You were very good." And he was wrong. I wasn't good. I was taking information that he had freely given to me and to everybody else in the world and using it to help create a relationship. Every one of us have those opportunities if we'll just listen and think a bit outside the box on how can I best get to know an individual. So let's explore this question, Ricky. The book's great. Fantastic lessons, one after another. Um, walk us through the how you've taken this and moved it into the business world. Because what you've done, especially in the, in the area of search, you've been a key player there. You've been through a lot of different experiences Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing today to bring it to the present and how these skills that you've acquired over many, many years have helped you to be an effective player in that market. Well, John, it just goes back to relationships and caring. Um, the staffing industry is a strange industry. I spent a year and a half at Corn Ferry, learned a tremendous amount. Great firm. Uh, Alan Neely is one of my mentors and dear, dear, dear friends. Uh, and I actually left there to write book one. Uh, uh, I was not as successful at the executive search level because they're more looking at um, uh, guys with MBAs, finding other guys with MBA. I don't have an MBA. And uh, so I really wasn't on the same level. And I realized that they realized it. And so we made a decision to part ways. And that's when I wrote The Heart of Networking, uh, uh, book one or uh, first edition. Uh, I later transitioned into the staffing industry or the recruiting industry where we place uh, contractors, attempt to perm, and permanent folks for technology companies all across the city. And that's when I just started using the network, telling folks that, you know, uh, we are one of the 478 staffing firms in town. There's one on every other street corner because there's no barrier to entry. Anybody can get in this business. But what I promise each and every person is selling you and getting your in business is good for us and it'd be helpful. But I have more interest in helping you over the long haul, it is my goal to put more money in your pocket than I ever take in fees. And they look at me like I'm half crazy, which may be true. But uh, I say, you know, give me a list of your top five prospects. Let me open a door for you. One situation occurred with a company, again, I won't mention it, but, uh, well, I will. Uh, Dell, everybody's heard of Dell. Right. You know, Mr. Dell has done very, very well uh, over the years. But I sat with the vice president of Dell uh, in a restaurant at the Perimeter Mall area, and he showed me five companies that he had been trying to penetrate in the Atlanta area. I said, I can help you here, here, here. I can't help you at these two. Within a couple of weeks, I set him up an appointment with a company that I will not mention, who ended up buying $4 million worth of services out of Dell. And I got invited to Dell World in Las Vegas three <laughs> years in a row. And I also had dinner with Mr. Dell and a few other people uh, out at Perimeter Mall when he was in town visiting SecureWorks. 
after Dell had acquired Mike Cody's wow. company. So again, by thinking outside the box, by creating an opportunity for somebody else. Oh, and by the way, the company I was employed with at that time got a global contract to service Dell for all staffing. We were the smallest company by a proportion of 100 of any other firm. They had billion dollar firms and we were probably a eight, $10 million firm at that time, but we had a global contract and I was out at Dell World uh, going to see Rod Stewart with a lot of Dell executives and this, that, and the other. That doesn't happen by luck. That happens by planning and execution and the work part of networking. So what is the perfect customer for you right now, Ricky? What 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 are the characteristics of that perfect customer opportunity? We're very proud that we serve Accenture, a company billions and billions of dollars, but I felt you know, very fortunate to know some of the Atlanta folks and they were kind to me and gave us an opportunity and we've made some placements there. That's an outside the box. We're a boutique company. Most of the companies are smaller companies, emerging growth technology companies, or companies like uh, I'm serving uh, One Inc., which is a company that a dear friend of mine, Elizabeth Homaki, who was at Elevon for many, many years, which was my largest client back in 2010 or 12. Uh, she's now the CIO of One Inc. out of California. We just placed someone in a couple of weeks there. Uh, other, we've done some work in the nonprofit community, but anybody that's looking for technology position, or we also do accounting and finance, but mostly technology positions. And we've we've brought people in as, as contractors for Salesforce engineers, and we actually placed a CTO last year for a merging growth company that Sig Mosley introduced me to, wow. God bless Sig, and uh, and they've become a great client of ours. Again, it's relationship driven. The last sales call, cold call I made, uh, Bill Clinton was president. I don't make cold calls. I, I, I'm very blessed to have people like John Yates and Sig Mosley and Paparelli and and the list goes on and on that call me when they see or hear of a company that's looking for talent and where I can bring value to them, I can introduce them to a leadership Atlanta or Atlanta Community Food Bank or something going on the United Way or Hands-On Atlanta or TechBridge. These are all organizations that have done so much good in Atlanta and, and I love being involved in all of them. Yeah, it's a very important point. It's something you highlight in the book. And it's really, it's something that I've learned from you uh, and hopefully have implemented effectively is this idea of being involved in other organizations where you're giving back to other people. Um, and there's some great organizations in the community. You mentioned, for example, the Atlanta Food Bank being one of those. Tell us a little bit too about Atlanta as a place. People might be listening and say, well, look, this is great. Book's fantastic. Ricky's a great guy. You know, should I, should I move to Atlanta if I'm in another location? What is it about this city that you think is a magnet to attract people like you to want to come here and stay and people like me as well? And and what's your outlook on the future for Atlanta? I, I, I'm bullish on Atlanta. I was born in Atlanta and I will die in Atlanta or on a Delta flight trying to get home quick as I can. I love Atlanta, Georgia. It's the city within the trees. You fly into Atlanta, and you get excited about life. But Atlanta is a homogenous community. We are the birthplace of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we're, we're the, we are where the Carter Center is. We are where world-changing people have lived and walked amongst us. Andrew Young, a guy that I personally just am blown away with. We have a loving community. Are we perfect? Good God, no. We have income in disparity that is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do, but we have people that care about one another. And I've talked to meeting planners when I was in the hospitality industry. I've talked to technologists. I've talked to people all over the, the spectrum of employment. 
No one is like, no other city is like Atlanta. In Atlanta, Georgia, the Atlanta Convention and Business Bureau, the downtown hotels still get together once a week and compare business where they can figure out how I can move a block of rooms to you because I can wow. do something else. You know, again, not collusion. It's just strictly helping one another. But meeting planners have told me no other city does that. Wow. Atlanta does things through Technology Association of Georgia and their great leadership. Uh, all the different organizations are pulling together because until we're all free, we're all fed, we're all educated, and everything's going well, none of us really should be happy. We all push forward. You know, you're, you've been more articulate about Atlanta than I am, but I, I do describe Atlanta as what I believe is probably the most diverse city in the United States, and it works in Atlanta, and it works in a very positive way of people giving back. Again, we're not perfect. Um, so, Ricky, let me maybe ask a final question. You're, I've always known you to have a spiritual foundation, but you've also been someone that that doesn't force it on anyone and is very accommodating and understanding of other people and whatever their spiritual beliefs might be or not, as the case may be. Tell us maybe in closing, what's your foundation there? What, what spiritually keeps you going every morning? Well, I grew up in the church, you know, always St. Paul United Methodist in Columbus, Georgia. I've always had a faith-based uh, perspective on life. Did I, become a, 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 a prodigal son from time to time, no question about it. Did I uh, slip away from my faith and, and what I believe to be true from time to time? No question about it. But what I always believed was God is love and that it is our job as followers of God to love everybody, regardless of where they part their hair, the color of their skin, their religious background. Everybody's to be loved unequivocally. For God so loved the world that he gave so we are to love the same way. Do I get it right every day? No question about it. But I love what's going on in the diversity, inclusion, and equity world now. How companies are creating departments to make sure that people are trade, created equitably. I was fighting to break the glass ceiling in the 80s. And, uh, and I continue to work on those issues today because it's to me critically important. It's not, I am white. I've been white all my life. I have enjoyed white privilege. No, that's not true. I have... Uh, I have uh, been granted white privilege. I never was excited about it uh, uh, because it's just wrong. It's just wrong. You should be treated equally. When I when I get pulled over in my car by driving too fast, I should get the same ticket that somebody else who does not look like me would get when they're pulled over. So again, those are issues that uh, maybe you don't talk about in business. Maybe you don't talk about uh, uh, at the uh, at a picnic but I talk about them because they're critically important to me. So Ricky, maybe in summary, I think there's three things I think of when I think of Ricky Steele and um, they're partially reflected in your title. Unbelievable networker, big heart, an incredible friend. And, you know, it's interesting as people go through careers and we've been through a lot of years together in different areas it's a rare situation where you can be with someone and see them in all those environments and say, whenever you meet them, big heart, unbelievable networker, dear friend. So Ricky, I appreciate your time today. I'm also excited about what you're continuing to do in the staffing and recruiting area. And you've got me thinking again about ways that how I, how I can help Ricky Steele, because if I'm helping you, I know you're out there helping a hundred times as many people as I am. Ricky, thanks for being with me today. John, it was a real blessing. Thank you. You're a good man. Thank you, Ricky.